You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We'll have those stories for you in just a moment. But we begin tonight with new developments in the death of an Indigenous man in Prince George in 2017. Five RCMP officers are now facing charges. That's right. Two Mounties are accused of manslaughter and three others from the same detachment are accused of attempting to obstruct justice. Our Kamal Kuramali has been following this story and joins us now in studio live with more. Kamal. The charges in relation to the death of an Indigenous man in July of 2017, 35-year-old Dale Culver. Now, the father of three was a member of the Wet'suwet'en and Gitsan First Nations. His death at the time led to a number of protests in northern B.C. and allegations of racism in policing. Now, the Independent Investigations Office says police responded to reports of a man casing parked vehicles in a Prince George neighborhood. The police watched dog added the man tried to flee when questioned by a police officer. That's when a struggle ensued between the man and an officer. Additional police arrived and pepper spray was used. The man appeared to have trouble breathing and eventually collapsed and died a short while later. Now, the IIO forwarded a report to Crown in May of 2020 recommending charges against the five officers. Manslaughter charges have now been sworn against Constable Paul Saint-Marie and Constable Jean-Francois Monette, while attempted obstruction charges have been laid against Constable Arthur Dahlman, Constable Clarence Alexander McDonald, and Sergeant Bayan Yosibio Cruz. Does not surprise me. First Nations have known for a long, long time that we are subject to racism and uh, egregious behavior by police services across Canada. It does surprise me how long it took. I thought that was very sad. The family was asking for a resolution and we're hoping for one much faster. And so were the Indigenous people. Uh, but this seemed to have taken a long time. Now, according to Prince George RCMP, currently four officers remain operational. St. Marie, Monette, Dalman and Cruz and McDonald is on administrative leave for reasons unrelated to this incident. Their duty status is subject to continuous assessment. Also, the IIO told Global News earlier this evening the investigation was a challenging one. It took a lot of civilian witnesses and took the coroner quite a while to determine the cause of death. Meanwhile, the first court appearances for the charged officers is scheduled for March 14th. More coverage at that time, no doubt. Thanks very much, Kamal. Well, the National Police Federation issued a statement critical of the time the investigation took. The statement reads, the investigation by the Independent Investigations Office of BC, the charge assessment by the BC Prosecution Service, and the ultimate charge approval decision by BC Crown Counsel took almost six years, creating an extensive period of uncertainty for our members, Mr. Culver's family, and the community of Prince George. Now, the final conclusions of the coroner's inquest into the death of VPD Constable Nicole Chan. The jury has made 12 recommendations aimed at preventing a similar case from happening again. Ramina Day has been covering the hearing for us. It heard from more than 30 witnesses uh, in total, Ramina. 
Sophie, seven days of powerful testimony. The jury astute and engaged during the entire process. After four years in the dark regarding how and why Constable Chan fell through the cracks, finally a sense of justice for her family. She would be very happy that she's finally listened to um, and that everyone else has listened. After almost a decade as a proud member of Vancouver Police, Chan took her life January 27th, 2019. She was 30 years old. The inquest jury heard Chan was struggling with severe depression and PTSD after alleged inappropriate relationships with her two superiors, HR Sergeant Dave Van Patten and Supervisor Sergeant Greg McCullough. The jury making 12 recommendations to prevent a similar death in the future. The lion's share directed at Vancouver Police. To the chief, respectful workplace training should be mandatory, rigorous, in person, and on a regular basis for all ranks, not just pressing send on an online course. A yearly check-in with a psychologist should be mandatory for all police officers, plus mandatory psychological interviews for all recruits. The whole point of the inquest was to show that uh, Nicole never wanted to be a victim. She found herself in that way. And how can we help her stop being a victim? And so what we're hoping uh, comes out of this today is that these recommendations will truly be listened to uh, and that action will actually flow from it. Chan was apprehended under the Mental Health Act the night before she took her life. But she was released from BGH one hour and 20 minutes after being triaged. Chan's boyfriend, police and paramedics thought it was a mistake given her history of suicide attempts. One officer testified Chan knew what to say to get released. The treating psychiatrist said he did not have all the information. He testified he could not legally hold Chan against her will. The jury's recommendations to Vancouver General Hospital, the treating doctor should have direct communication with emergency responders, family members and community doctors. And to the Minister of Health, there should be a database between all health authorities for patients with suicidal histories. Now, a coroner's inquest is not a criminal proceeding. There's no finding of guilt. The recommendations are not binding. And that being said, we did hear from the chief of Vancouver Police who told us in a statement that Nicole's death that death has highlighted the importance of our conversations about mental health and accountability in policing. Though we will take time to review the jury's recommendations, we remain committed to ensuring Nicole's death continues to lead to positive change within policing and for anyone struggling with their mental health. Back to you. Ramina Day are reporting for us tonight. Ramina, thank you. A new payment model for BC doctors takes effect today and while a lot are jumping on board, not all doctors are completely sold on it. Aaron MacArthur has more on what the improvements are and why some physicians have yet to sign on. Just bend your head towards me. How doctors get paid in BC is changing, at least for some of them. More than 1,000 family physicians signed on for the new payment model launched February 1st, a change Doctors of BC calls transformational. It is a fundamental choice to value family physicians in the care and provision of their patients. 
The new framework does away with the flat fee for service of about $30 per patient and instead compensates doctors across all of their daily tasks. As well, the limit on the number of patients has been removed and more money is available for complex care. It is not going to improve everything overnight, but it shows our joint determination to make things better and to ensure people have the care in the community, the primary care they need to stay healthy. While 92% of physicians in BC voted to approve this new funding formula, only between a quarter and a third of eligible family doctors moved away from the fee-for-service model Wednesday. Some doctors say there are still questions that haven't been fully answered, specifically around locums and care of complex patients. When I look at the model as it stands now, it doesn't really make that much of a difference compared to fee-for-service. And I'm hearing that from a lot of other older physicians. The government expects the number of sign-ons to increase as physicians are made aware of the changes and more importantly expects more people to gain access to primary health care as the new funding model lures more physicians back to family practice. According to the government, the average full-time family doctor could earn about $150,000 more a year. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Another health note for you now, a familiar name and face in public health is back on the job, although this time in a different province. Alberta's former top doctor, Dina Hinshaw, has been hired here in B.C. as Deputy Provincial Health Officer under Dr. Bonnie Henry. And our Keith Baldry joins us now from Victoria with more on this hire. Keith. Yeah, a bit of a surprise out of the blue. Dr. Dina Hinshaw had been the Bonnie Henry of Alberta through the pandemic, very familiar to Albertans, holding similar briefings as Dr. Bonnie Henry and Adrian Dix did in terms of hundreds of briefings related to COVID. But she was dumped as Alberta's top public health doctor by Premier, new Alberta Premier Daniel Smith, who fundamentally disagrees with the public health policies brought in by Hinshaw and Dr. Henry. Alberta is going a different way when it comes to public health in B.C. So now Alberta's former Dr. Bonnie Henry equivalent is now coming to work for Dr. Dr. Bonnie Henry here in BC, as you mentioned, as Deputy Provincial Health Officer Adrian Dix, the health minister, said today, Alberta's loss is BC's gain. Shaw, you know, BC is calling her extraordinary uh, uh, skills and energy and commitment is obviously of great value everywhere. We're absolutely delighted to have her, you know, uh, uh, come to, uh, to British Columbia and be part and support our public health care system. She's not the first doctor to be recruited here from Alberta. Certainly won't be the last. So a bit of a shot there from the health minister to Alberta. Now, Dr. Hinshaw and Dr. Henry know each other quite well. Uh, they basically talk to each other pretty well every day through the pandemic. Health, public health officers really in lines of communication like never before through this. So they've already had a pretty good working, uh, working relationship. She's on a six-month contract, but don't be surprised, Chris, if that's extended past that. All right. Thanks very much, Keith. Right. And health care will no doubt be brought up during Premier David Eby's visit to Ottawa this week, his first as Premier. He brought several key cabinet ministers with him to talk about priorities for British Columbia. Richard Zussman has more. It's a pleasure to be here uh, representing British Columbians. My second home is face to face formally for the first time. We're both delivering for British Columbians uh, and we both have a critical role to play. BC Premier David Eby and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau meeting Wednesday in Ottawa. Eby bringing along half a dozen cabinet ministers from the meetings in the nation's capital. 
one of the biggest outcomes of these meetings is just that the Prime Minister was able to hear directly uh, from us about the priorities of British Columbians. Healthcare dominating the conversation and funding needed in British Columbia. Also on the agenda, food security, training more RCMP officers and bail reform, with Ottawa promising to update the federal criminal code about releasing repeat offenders. For very specific commitments uh, from uh, the Prime Minister, from the Deputy Prime Minister, uh, and in the Attorney General's meeting with the uh, Justice Minister uh, around uh, working with uh, the provinces. While it may have been the Premier's first official visit with the Prime Minister in Ottawa, it certainly won't be the last. While his colleagues here in B.C. are at the Legislature, he will be back in the nation's capital, this time with Premiers from across the country beside him to talk health care. I was keen to talk to the Prime Minister about, uh, about the health care uh, proposal that he's going to bring forward to Premiers next week. Few details from the Prime Minister on what to expect when the meetings happen next week. Down the hall from EB's meeting, another federal leader, Conservative Pierre Polyever, was sharp criticisms on BC's health care approach and a move to decriminalization of users of small amounts of hard drugs. The Trudeau NDP approach is on open display in Vancouver. It is a complete disaster. It is hell on earth. We're going to reverse that policy. EB did not speak to Polyavra while in Ottawa and continues to be a firm supporter of the policy. When it comes to uh, decriminalization and safe supply, uh, our goal is, and has always been, uh, to find ways to keep people alive so that they can get into treatment. David Eby, Premier of... Eby will leave the nation's capital Thursday morning, arriving in Toronto just in time for an afternoon meeting with Ontario Premier Doug Ford. Richard Listening, Global News, Victoria. A terrifying verbal attack caught on camera. Kids don't need to stop like it, get the out of Canada. The homophobic rant and what police and experts are saying about it today. That's next on the News Hour. Hi, my name is McGraw and this is Kelly. Humor in a hospital setting. The program using puppets to ease the fear in young patients. That's later on the news hour. And a heavy-handed break-in and joyride through a Toronto-area mall coming up. Right now, though, a homophobic tirade caught on video is getting the attention of social media and politicians. Police are now investigating, and as Jennifer Palmer shows us, support for the victims is flooding in from across the country. Don't talk to him. Do you understand me? Don't you a tirade leveled at a couple after a SkyTrain ride from Joyce to Burrard Station. Jamie Pine says the intimidation began on the SkyTrain before spilling out onto the street. He was almost breathing down our neck. Yeah, it was, uh, it was quite intimidating. We, we were definitely concerned. The issue, Pine says, was that he and his boyfriend made physical contact with each other on the SkyTrain, the stranger alleging it was in front of kids. Kids don't need a snapshot. His arm was resting on my knees. Uh, there was no touching, kissing, no affection. It was, we were just talking. There were no, no kids. Pine started recording the encounter. It's been seen thousands of times and eventually made its way to the Vancouver Police Department. An investigation is underway. What we see in the video um, is some very hurtful speech. It's, it's, it's hateful in nature, there's no doubt. Uh, but we need to get a bigger understanding, a bigger, you know, uh, uh, landscape of what actually happened before the incident and after as well. I don't want this f my f 
country. The incident fired up a lot of people, including Vancouver Ken Sim tweeting, there is no place for this kind of behavior in our city. Hateful and bigoted comments are never acceptable in Vancouver or anywhere else. And Premier David Eby, Jamie, I'm sorry this happened to you and your boyfriend. This is disgusting behavior. They're the problem, not you. It should be a concern for everyone. Hate crimes, online hate crimes, hate speech, violence against 2S LGBTQ folk is at an all-time rise. A lot of our community members that feel very much unsafe even crossing the street. This is no new story to us. Gill suggests education to foster understanding. As for Pine, he also wants justice. Ultimately, I want him to face consequences. I feel like that not only will set an example of that this is not okay, the man claims to be from Grand Prairie, Alberta. No arrests have been made. Jennifer Palma, Global News. A Surrey mother is raising some questions about Canada's youth criminal justice system after learning two of her daughter's attackers won't be going to jail after she was swarmed last year. The victim says she's struggling just to live her life while her attackers are free with few conditions. Krista Dow has the story. It was an act to exert control over my daughter in a disgusting, humiliating way. Like, it's not okay. She's a human. The cruel and vicious attack from last May continues to haunt the Surrey family. You want to go more? No! You want to go more? No! Every time as a family we start feeling okay, it's another court date. It's another victim's impact statement. It's another facing these families or children in court. And it's draining me. It's been an exhausting eight months of navigating the court system, this mom says, trying to find justice for her teenage daughter who's still struggling to heal. I'm sorry. My daughter's been handed a life sentence. She, she's not going to graduate like other kids. She's not going to walk across the stage. She's never going to live life like a normal kid. In an impact statement, her daughter says, quote, how was I supposed to go back to school with kids that just watched that happen and not help me? To this day, I cannot go in big crowds without anxiety attacks. I just want parents to sit down with their kids and talk to them and let them know standing around and watching stuff like this is never okay. Her daughter's attackers now walking free. All three girls pleaded guilty to assault causing bodily harm. Oh my lord. The first attacker sentenced to 18 months probation and received credit for 161 days pre-sentencing. The second handed a conditional discharge and the third to be sentenced later this month. Everyone involved, minors, and cannot be identified under the Youth Criminal Justice Act, a system she believes is failing her daughter. Part of me doesn't want kids just locked up and thrown away to fall between the cracks and never get a good chance at life. But at the same time, there's got to be consequences for your actions. And despite the court's decision, she says she'll continue fighting for her daughter. I don't know how I'm ever going to heal from this, and I have to try and keep that strong face for my daughter to let her know that you are a victim, but you're not a victim for the rest of your life. Krista Dow, Global News. Just ahead, flooded condo owners put up a fight. We didn't do anything wrong, and why am I having to deal with all this stuff? When insurance wouldn't pay to fix the damage, Consumer Matters helped them find higher ground. Also tonight, recalibrating retail, the big change that's happening in the way we shop.
taking a look at the Cats ER Tunnel right now. Westbound traffic on Highway 1 on the approach to the Ironworkers Memorial Bridge is very slow. You're back through the tunnel after an earlier problem. Today's Lotto 649 Gold Ball Jackpot is $22 million plus the classic $5 million jackpot. Two jackpots on every draw. In the Global Traffic Center, I'm Jennifer Lee. Retail shopping is not what it once was. While downtown storefronts sit empty, prime spots are being snapped up in the suburbs. Grace Key takes a look at the recalibration in an industry adapting to change. Saatchi and Saatchi is one of the few businesses left standing on Robson Street from its glory days. This corner of Robson and Thurlow that I've been for 33 years, it was called the gold mine of Vancouver. It was very sweet back then because the rents were about $30 a square foot. Slowly, slowly it jumped up and now being at around the 230, 240, it becomes very difficult. But times have changed. With high rent, people working from home and inflation, the retail sector is seeing a shift. The urban retail Collier's index vacancy rate is 4%. Meanwhile, the average suburban retail vacancy rate is 1%. Some businesses that perhaps don't want to pay the higher rent downtown um, can really make sense of it now, moving out to a suburban location where the rent is more affordable and, you know, their, their customers are there as well. When you look at vacancy rates in Vancouver, Robson Street from Barata Thurlow, the gold mine of Vancouver, is the highest at 15%. Alberni, 9.5%. Gastown, 76 But the future is hardly dire for Vancouver or the downtown area. Even though um, there's been perhaps a little more um, storefront turnover on Robson, it's still a very low vacancy rate. Before we started on these extremely low vacancy rates, something in the 6 to 10% range would have always been considered very healthy because that allows uh, opportunities for growth and um, stores to right size and move down the block or move to a corner location. So 6 to 10% is still very healthy and we're still very much below that. In fact, high-density neighborhoods are seeing low vacancy rates. To Live for Bakery and Cafe opened 10 weeks ago on Nanaimo Street. I feel like it's worth paying a little bit more to be in Vancouver just because it's so central and the density, it's, it really helps business. Collier's is expecting one to two years of bumpiness in business openings and closures, but expects a positive long-term outlook for the retail sector. Grace Key, Global News. Well, water damage from a neighboring unit is the fear of many condo owners. Mm. Chances are you could be on the hook for the damage, even if it isn't your fault. Consumer Matters reporter Andrea is here with one couple's struggle, Anne. That's right, Chris. Whether it's a leak from the building sprinkler system or an overflowing bathtub in the condo unit above you that causes damage to your unit, neither the Strata Corporation nor the owner of the unit where the leak originated are necessarily responsible for the damage it causes to other units. A Pitt Meadows couple learned that fact when they got an unexpected surprise and needed Consumer Matters to help sort it out. came in here and water was streaming down here and onto the floor. And that was just the beginning of Lorraine Prince's water troubles. Two or three inches of water on the floor. Back in October, Lorraine and her husband John filed an insurance claim after they say the condo unit above them left the water running in the bathroom, causing damage to the couple's ceilings and walls. So it's streaming down through the vents here onto the floor. 
Lorraine and John were charged $2,500 for the repairs, which included the couple's $500 deductible. The couple has home insurance and opened a claim immediately with their insurer, Aviva. But their claim was denied, Aviva stating it was the Strata's responsibility to pay for the repairs. They said it was the, the uh, Strata's responsibility because it was walls and ceiling. It was later determined the Strata Corporation does not have any legal liability or responsibility for water damage to their unit caused by the water leakage from the condo above them and the Strata Corporation would not be reimbursing them. We didn't do anything wrong and why am I having to deal with all this stuff? In the event of a water leak, the Condo Homeowners Association says people often assume the Strata Corporation's insurance covers everything. But generally, that only happens if the amount of the damage claim exceeds the deductible amount on the Strata Corporation's insurance policy. In the event it doesn't meet the Strata Corporation's deductible, then any damages within Strata lots are the responsibility of each strata lot owner, not the strata corporation. Which means purchasing proper home insurance coverage and reading the fine print is critical. When there's a flood in the building below the deductible, I have to maintain repair my own strata lot if it's below the strata's deductible. That's where my insurance kicks in. Consumer Matters reached out to Lorraine and John's insurer, Aviva, asking why it wasn't covering the repair costs. Aviva stating, Typically, damage to a strata unit structure, such as walls and ceilings, is covered under the Strata Corporation's insurance policy. We've reviewed our customers' claim based on their specific circumstances and have resolved it with them. They had re-examined the claim and decided to pay it. That was basically it. John and Lorraine were reimbursed $2,000. It was so frustrating. I mean, I was ready to give up. And then we decided we'd try uh, Consumer Matters. And the Condo Homeowners Association also says when purchasing home insurance, do not purchase your policy online. Deal with a broker who can explain the policy in detail. Also, if condo owners have a dispute with their insurance company, you can go to your broker. And if that doesn't work out, you can file a complaint with the Insurance Council of British Columbia. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can email me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. All right. Thank you, Anne. Coming up, access denied. Private homeowners block access to a popular trail on public lands and the effort to get it opened up next. Also coming up, how calling a cab just got easier for people with mobility challenges. Good evening. Over at the Portman Bridge, we have a stall eastbound mid-span in the right through lane. Traffic is starting to heavily back up on the approach. New year, new ride is on now. Cruise through new roads this year with the 2022 Chevrolet Silverado 1500. Visit your local Chevrolet dealer today. In the Global Traffic Center, I'm Jennifer Lee. A popular Coquitlam Trail and its Instagram-worthy waterfalls have been off-limits for a couple of years now, but there's a growing movement to change that. The Crystal Falls Trail starts on Coquitlam City property, and it ends on Crown Land. But along that three-kilometer stretch, it crosses private property. Two years ago, those landowners blocked off access with fencing and no trespassing signs. Now, though, pressure is growing to reopen the trail. The whole Crystal Falls walk 
in and out. It's a very easy, accessible walk. Uh, it's beautiful because it's right by the river. It, then you end up at, uh, at the waterfalls, which you know, at the right time of the season are spectacular. Nobody likes trespassing and you know, we want to respect the boundaries and we absolutely want to work with the land managers or landowners to, to have uh, you know, proper access to this. Before the closure, several thousand hikers would use the trail on any sunny weekend day. The trail also functioned as an exit for mountain bike and hiking trails from neighboring Pinecone Burke Provincial Park. A big boost today for B.C. residents with mobility issues. I am one of those people that have waited for hours uh, on a Saturday night to get home um, for an accessible taxi. And I know many others that have as well. Stanley Park, the setting for the provincial government's announcement of $3 million to get more accessible taxis on the road. The money will help taxi operators purchase, modify and maintain vehicles that can accommodate wheelchairs. Unlike ride-hailing companies, taxi companies can be required to reserve a portion of their fleet for accessible vehicles as part of their operating license. Accessible taxis are very expensive to operate. It costs approximately $64,000 a year to maintain these vehicles. And looking to buy a new vehicle, you're upwards of $90,000. These rebates are designed to offset the higher costs of operating accessible taxis, clearing the financial barriers, getting in the way of expanded service for people with disabilities. More money for accessible taxis will be provided over the next couple of years. The funds come from a per-ride fee that was established when ride-hailing was approved in B.C. back in 2019. A new report shows inequities in health care leave women vulnerable to heart and brain ailments. According to the Heart and Stroke Foundation, poor access to health care through either low socioeconomic status or rural location is one of the reasons women can be more susceptible to heart disease or stroke. The foundation also says ethnicity can be a factor. As research shows, Indigenous women, South Asian, Afro-Caribbean, Hispanic and Chinese North American women have greater risk factors for heart disease. Due to biological differences, women tend to have higher risk risks, making stroke and heart conditions the leading cause for premature death in women. Still ahead, making the hospital a little less scary for kids. Some patients slide head first into the camera. The healing power of puppetry, putting young patients at ease. And in sports, is this time the last time? The retirement message from Tom Brady to his fans. Again. Join the new Global BC Arts and Culture Scene segment as we explore all the people and places that make our creative community so special. So come make the scene. The Global BC Arts and Culture Scene on Global BC and BC One. Well, it's one way to break into a mall. Thieves drove a vehicle through some doors at a shopping center north of Toronto. Surveillance video provided by police shows the sedan pulling up to the Vaughn Mills Mall just before 1 this morning. The driver brakes briefly before gunning it through the glass doors. Security cameras show the Audi with a Quebec license plate racing down mall corridors. Police say two people got out to break into an electronics store and take off with an undisclosed amount of merchandise. The thieves made their way out the same way they got in, smashing through a different set of doors. 
Those polished floors look like the polished ice of a couple of days ago. But uh, that's all gone now, except in that photo behind Christy, at least on the <laughs> lower mainland, I guess, Christy. Yeah, so we're headed towards warmer conditions, but it does mean some rain for our area. But there's parts of the central interior caribou region that have been pounded with snow for the last basically 48 hours. And there's still more snow on the way tonight and for some northern regions tomorrow. So this is a shot from Prince George. Kevin sharing this one with us. And then I've got another one showing the Quinell area. I had someone tweeting me, actually, which I'll show you in a bit, uh, a photo from the Quinell area. And he, she said that took her... Uh, uh, husband about three hours just to clear their small driveway. So I'll show you that a little bit later. But these are the areas under a warning. So generally, we're going to see conditions ease across these southern regions, but we're going to continue to see an impact across the northern regions. We've seen anywhere from 20 to 35 centimeters of snow, and there's still more on the way as we continue overnight. So here's a look at that moisture. As I mentioned, it's going to shift north. So inland regions of the north coast, as well as areas north of Prince George, will continue to see snowfall. Uh, through the day tomorrow, but overall it's going to slip north of the Caribou region. So a little bit of a break finally, for example, for those of you in the Quinell region. For our area, we're expecting a dry day tomorrow, but by Friday that moisture is going to push in. In fact, we'll see a little bit of rain Thursday night into Friday, and then the floodgates open. We've got a parade of storms headed our way. It's going to be one thing after another starting sort of Thursday night. Now, Friday's not going to be a total soaker. Uh, they will see some breaks in the action, but certainly keep your rain jacket handy. So heavy snow still from Quinell north, but easing for areas like Quinell. Some breaks of blue sky through the southern interior. And we'll see some rainfall tomorrow across the west and north parts of Vancouver Island. Mainly cloudy for our region, but dry. Best chance for sunshine will be in the Fraser Valley tomorrow. And then, as I mentioned, by tomorrow night, that's when the floodgates open. And we are in for a very wet pattern. Temperatures, though, are going to be above seasonal. So it is going to be mild, that's for sure. All right, tonight's central windows, weather window that I was alluding to. So this is uh, Michelle's husband and he, she, he's, she said that he spent three hours or more just trying to clear their small driveway. So he was working hard. So good job. I don't know his name, but uh, well done, Michelle's husband. It's a big driveway. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you, Christy. Lots of snow. Holy cow. All right. Now an update on a story we first brought you last night. The Whistler community digging deep as well for an injured friend. A silent auction last night raised nearly $50,000 to help Wayne Wiltsey, Whistler's former director of lift maintenance. Wiltsey was left paraplegic after a car accident last February. And now after nearly a year of rehabilitation, he's able to return home to Pemberton. And the community has been raising money for accessibility renovations to the family home and to purchase an adapted van. More than $57,000 has also been raised in a GoFundMe for Wiltsey. Way to go. Well done. Mm -hmm. I'm sure he's glad to be back home now. Yeah. All right, Squire is here now with a look ahead to sports. What you got, Squire? Well, um, I can tell you that Tom Brady woke up this morning, and then he went for a walk, and then he decided he wanted to retire for a second time. I'll get to the point right away. I'm retiring for good. Well, you said that last year. Anyway, he's 45. And, of course, he unretired last year and came back and played. And he played well enough in the past season that it, if he wanted to play this coming season, unretire again, teams, some teams would offer him a contract. All right, thank you. Also tonight, Peace Arch Hospital puts a new spin on healthcare with a hero helping to put kids at ease.
Okay. So we're just talking about our various ailments that happen when you get older, which Tom I, Brady's maybe feeling now that he's. That's fine. true. I was going to say, bad. not being old myself, I don't know what no, that's like. No, we'll tell you. I feel bad for it. you people. <laughs> Uh, we'll get to Brady in a moment. The Vancouver Whitecaps training camp sounds like a perfect winter holiday. First, they went to Spain, and after a brief stop back home, they went down to Palm Springs, and they'll be there until February 18th. Now, there is talk that before this camp is over, the Whitecaps will have signed a new striker and a new goalkeeper. We'll see. I mean, that chase has been going on all winter. Today, they played a 45-minute exhibition game against fellow MLS club DC United. In the Coachella Valley, if you can't tell with the sign. And uh, Vancouver's only goal came from Matias Alborda, the guy they picked up in the offseason from Uruguay. Nice little header there off the corner kick from Pedro Vite, who also throws this free kick at the net right before the end of the game. Veselinovic has stopped. So, oh, it says nothing, nothing. Well, it's actually 1-1. That was the final. Well, despite being offered various head coaching jobs, including one with New Zealand's men's team, John Herdman says he is staying with Canada's men's team as the head coach. In fact, he has a contract with Soccer Canada, or Canada Soccer, if you like, through the next World Cup in 2026. Before he was Canada's men's coach, of course, he was our women's coach from 2011 to 2018, led Canada to the World Cup last year, finishing first in qualifying, but drew a tough group in Qatar, not to make excuses, but he did, and we uh, lost all three games. But at least we got there. Uh, Tom Brady has announced he's retiring from football again. Now, last year taught us that a Tom Brady retirement announcement requires at least a six-week grace period before we know it's real. And it should be said that if he changes his mind again, there would be teams more than willing to sign him because he was third in yards passing this past year behind only Patrick Mahomes and Justin Herbert. He can still play at a high level despite being 45 years old, but... He says, that's it. He's got nothing left to prove, which has been the case for a while. And instead of a big, splashy press conference like last time, Brady, who has seven Super Bowls and now two retirements in his career as the GOAT, just turned on his phone and went low budget. Good morning, guys. I'll get to the point right away. I'm retiring for good. I know the process uh, was a pretty big deal last time, so when I woke up this morning, I figured I'd just press record and let you guys know first. So I uh, won't be long-winded. Like you only get one super emotional retirement essay, and I used mine up last year. So I uh, really thank you guys so much to every single one of you for supporting me, my family, my friends, my teammates, my competitors. I could go on forever. There's too many. Um, thank you guys for allowing me to live my absolute dream. I wouldn't change a thing. Love you all. He found a very secluded place, didn't he? <laughs> like, I fully expect somebody to walk behind him and go, hey, isn't that Tom Brady yeah. retiring? <laughs> um, the best young cross-country skiers and ski jumpers are in Whistler this week for the Under-23 World Championships. And one of those ski jumpers is Alexandria Ludit of Calgary, who won Olympic bronze in the mixed team event and also became the first Canadian woman to win a World Cup event. Her love for this sport is part of the legacy, as you'll find out, from the 2010 Olympics. I love the rush of adrenaline and I love the excitement. I don't really have the nerves anymore at the top of the hill. Uh, it's something that I say they get us going off these young so that we never learn to be afraid. 
There was never any fear when, as a very young child, Alex Ludit first watched the sport of ski jumping during the 2010 Whistler Olympics on the very mountain she's now jumping from. And yes, hard for you and I to fathom, but for Allie, this was love at first sight. I watched ski jumping, I watched aerials, and I watched like all the extreme skiing sports, and I really liked it. I didn't really realize at the time that there was a huge inequality in women's sports, but I really begged my parents for the next kind of four years, and they finally let me start ski jumping at the age of nine. Um, and I've been in love with the sport ever since. Last month in Japan, Ali made history becoming the first Canadian female to ever win a World Cup ski jumping event. This coming on the heels of Canada capturing its first Olympic team jumping medal at the 2022 Beijing Games. Her success on the hill and the plight of female ski jumping athletes not lost on the 19-year-old. Women's ski jumping wasn't an Olympic event until 2014, even though the men have been jumping since the Winter Games began nearly a century ago. Yeah, it, it's a good feeling and it, it's good to know that I'm making positive change in my sport and, you know, I'm inspiring young Canadians across all sport and especially young girls. That's, that's the one that really gets me and that's the one that really uh, pushes me when I'm down. Reaching these lofty heights hasn't been easy. In order to take serious flight, Allie and her teammates train a world away in Slovenia, even though one of the best facilities anywhere is here in Whistler, except Whistler Olympic Park doesn't have the funding for full-time training. And that's one of the things that's so heartbreaking for me to watch is that there's this incredible facility here in Canada that is going unused. And even if it's not the national team using it, we could have, you know, the U.S. junior national team and the Canadian provincial teams using these hills. But, you know, since there's so few ski jumpers, they, they can't open it for us. And despite those challenges, Ali is well on her way to many more podiums. And that includes some well-earned recognition for her achievements in helping put Canada on the world ski jumping map. I actually was recognized for the first time in the airport uh, traveling from Calgary to Vancouver. So that was a pretty big deal, like it was pretty exciting for me. But you know, it's still there's a lot more to come from both me and my team. So I think it's just the beginning. <laughs> good for her. And they're up there uh, all this week at Whistler. Well, good luck to them and it's great to see Alexandra doing so well. Thanks, Squire. Up next, the talking bird helping make hospital visits a little less scary. Well, Peace Arch Hospital has a brand new staffer whose main job is to make kids smile. A hospital trip can be nerve-wracking, but as Global Sharon Bates tells us, an ER doctor is trying to ease anxieties with the help of a macaw named McGraw. Hi, my name is McGraw and this is Kelly. Hi. And today, I'm going to get a CT scan. Going to the hospital isn't fun for anyone, but for a child, it can be downright scary. You slide into the tunnel and out of the tunnel. So with the help of puppeteer and ventriloquist Kelly Haynes, Dr. Amir Baboudi, an ER doctor at Peace Arch Hospital, set out to make a series of videos to ease the fear and anxiety children might feel. Well, how does the medicine get inside? The way that we interact with kids can have a profound effect. Right, so, so it's very Im important to provide them with a the positive experience when they come in. There you go, Mama. Why don't you ha have a seat here? The idea for these videos came about a few years ago when Dr. Amir's own son had to go to hospital. 
and uh, he underwent uh, multiple procedures. Uh, luckily for him and us, there was a child life specialist there who explained to him about the procedures, and it made his uh, experience much better. Next, they're going to put an arm hugger on. That's funny, isn't it? Arm hugger. There are six videos in the series called McGraw, Kelly, and the Hospital, featuring ventriloquist Kelly Haynes, who has been performing with her sidekick, McGraw, since she was eight years old. I was in the hospital as well, yeah, when I was a uh, youngster. So I know what it feels like to be afraid of certain things, but when you understand them, they become, oh, this isn't so hard. I can do this, right? To access these videos, you just have to scan the QR code on the posters hanging in any hospital in the Fraser Health region. It's very re rewarding to, to see the parents and kids watching them. The, when the parents are calm, the child becomes calm too. Overall, it just provides a better experience for the kids and the parents too. Dr. Okay, Amir yeah, and yeah. Kelly hope okay. these videos will help parents and children across the province and beyond. He's a bird, so he has a hard time picking things up sometimes, so the kids really, I hope, laugh at that. I laugh. Sharon Bates, Global News. <laughs> you always have a friend with you, you know, when you're a ventriloquist. You ever notice when someone <laughs> yeah. has a puppet or a ventriloquist has the ventriloquist yeah. dummy, I guess, mm -hmm. uh -huh. you always talk to the puppet or the dummy? Yeah, That's true. Humans always human? will look at the puppet and talk to the puppet, even though it's on someone's hand. That's what you. That's what they hope you do. Well, exactly. You they make so you, you don't yeah. see their lips move. That's how a pro does it. <laughs> so. Exactly. They're really good at it. They are. All right. Thanks for watching. Had a great night. <laughs> Which one of us is the puppet again? <laughs>